Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray that we would be inclined toward it, that your spirit would attend our hearts, that we could hear it, and uh, not be hearers only of it, but doers. Lord, for those of us who have put our faith in you, Lord, would you grow us by this word? Uh, Lord, for those of us who are curious, who are um, not so sure, but are listening, uh, Lord, would we be drawn to it? Would you show us Jesus uh, that we might see that our life is in him? It's in his name we pray. Amen. So we've come to the last of Jesus' I am statements in John's gospel. And this one comes at the beginning of our text where Jesus says, I am the vine. Now, each of the I am statements are as emphatic as they are exclusive. In each and every one, Jesus asserts that I, I alone, am the bread of life, the light of life, the door for the sheep, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life. So here, Jesus in the same way, doesn't merely say, I am the vine, but he actually says, I am the true vine. The, in other words, the real vine, the authentic vine. And in putting it that way, I think we can know three things right away in just half a verse. First is that just as the root is the life of the plant, Jesus is saying, I am the life of human beings. So that if you want to quite literally get to the root of the matter when it comes to life, look no further than Jesus. And in saying that he's the real authentic root, the true root, he's acknowledging that there are fake roots, inauthentic roots, roots that look promising, that appear capable of nourishing your life, but actually have no life in them. And then I think there's a third thing that's at least implied, and that's that everyone in some way or another is digging around for that life-giving root. Universally, human beings strive after what we imagine will deliver life, whether it's family, relationships, career success, educational achievement, experiences, our morality, our religion, our irreligion, our politics, all kinds of things that might look like a nice nourishing root for my life. So when Jesus says right off the bat, I and I alone am the vine, the real one, he's saying right at the start, your search is over. Now, that's half a verse in, and it's actually half of what Jesus really has to say that he's going to unpack in the rest of this passage. He goes on to complete the thought of the Lord's relationship with his people in explaining that not only is Jesus the true vine, but that the Father is the vine dresser. Now, there's dozens of metaphors in the Bible for God's people. Uh, some are used more than others. Uh, body gets used a lot in reference to the church. Buildings, not so much, even though that is one of the metaphors the scripture uses for the church. It's not uncommon to refer to God's people as a flock. But here, Jesus raises another biblical metaphor for the church, that of the 
the field or the vineyard. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul was writing the church in Corinth, a church that had become enamored with something like a cult of personality among the pastors. Apparently, the Corinthians were, you know, gaga over Pastor Apollos, but the Apostle Paul, not so much. So what does Paul do? Paul reminds them of the nature of God's relationship with them, that they are God's field. And what that means is that they as pastors, Apollos and Paul, were a couple of field hands, but that the Lord is their life. He's the one who's really caring for them so that while he says, I planted and Apollos watered, God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And then he says, you are God's field. So in the same way God's kingdom has a good king and God's flock has a good shepherd, God's field or God's vineyard has a good vine dresser. Now, from what I know of it, which is very little, tending a vineyard is meticulous work and it is constant work. It involves year-round, up-close, in-depth attentiveness to every aspect of the plant and every aspect of the surrounding conditions that will make for the best yields for those vines. All that has to be done from the time of bud break in the spring to the fall harvest, but it might be that the winter, when the vines are dormant, is the most critical time in the life of the vineyard. Because it's then that the vine dresser is best able to assess the vine's overall health and make a plan and begin to plot out what will make for the best growth for the coming season and seasons to come. It's, it's in the winter that you really do the pruning. And it's that particular function that Jesus focuses in on, that he zeroes in on as he describes God's care for his people, for his vineyard. It's the pruning. Now, it might surprise you to see that Jesus first applies this pruning metaphor not to our personal spiritual life, but to our corporate spiritual life. He begins by focusing on how God cares for the church overall. And as he describes this, we're met, I think, with two surprises. You might even say we've got a couple of shockers that we've got to deal with. First of all, it's surprising, if not shocking, that someone... Well, let me back up for a second. The two shockers are this. The first one has to do with getting cut off. And the second one has to do with getting cut back. So first of all, it's a shocker that someone can appear to be very closely connected with Jesus, closely connected to the vine, and still come to be cut off for not bearing fruit. This is a really difficult thing to contemplate because at first glance, it seems like one minute someone's connected to Jesus, and the next they're kicked out willy-nilly. But if we pay close attention to what Jesus is describing here, we have to see it's something utterly different. What's being described here is that while there might be closeness to the vine, there was never actually connection to it. Never, never a life-giving connection. And the evidence of that is the fact that that branch bears no fruit. It doesn't have the life of the vine in it. You see, Jesus is saying there's a way of being Jesus adjacent while not being Jesus alive. 
It's possible to be a fan, but not a follower. It's possible to be an admirer, but not a worshiper. One may love Jesus' actions, but not his authority. They may love his humility, but not his holiness. His example, but not the cross. There's all kinds of places where Jesus addresses this, and, and many of them involve warnings of that kind of relationship with him. And maybe the most vivid is found in Matthew 7, where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, says Jesus, I never knew you. They're Jesus adjacent. They're appearing to be close. They call him Lord. They do actually great things in his name, and yet Jesus says they're not alive. Because even though the words sound right and the actions are impressive, the will of the Father is never done, as it says in Matthew 7 in that passage. There's no fruit. So that's the first shocker. The second shocker is that even if you are connected to Jesus by faith, even if you are alive in Him and bearing fruit, while there's no chance of you being cut off, you will certainly get cut back. Jesus says here, every branch bearing fruit gets cut back. It gets pruned. Now, the Greek word here is helpful because it connects to some English words that help us kind of sharpen the picture. The word for cut back in Greek is kathare. There's some English words that sound like that. Catheter, cathartic, catharsis. My wife's name is Catherine, which means purity. All these things have to do with cleansing, with purifying, with purging, with purity. So, so to get the fullness of the picture, it means that God is in pruning his people, not just doing something negative. negative. He's actually up to something quite positive in pruning his fruit-bearing people. That in the cutting back, there is purging, there is cleansing, there is purifying. He is dealing with the sin of the, life of, their, of the life of his people that they might thrive and bear more and more fruit. What seems like loss at first actually works to the gain. Now, if you've ever seen anybody who really knows how to prune a tree, watch them do that, you might wonder as they do it, you know, what did that tree ever do to them? It looks like they hate the tree. It looks counterproductive. It seems backward. It looks maybe even harmful. It looks kind of like jogging looks. But the reality is that cutting, the cutting back is essential to the life and thriving of the plant. It's even essential to life beyond its life and bearing fruit beyond itself and being a healthy part of the vineyard. Now, when you learn the truth about pruning, I think you get something invaluable for your own life. You get perspective. When you know that God's love and care for his people involves pruning, that it's not ultimately reductive, but in some way and at some time is productive, that means we can't look at our own sufferings and our own loss and our trials and tribulations in the same way ever again. Because instead of concluding that the Lord is being cruel or that the Lord has forgotten me, you can say 
to yourself because of what Jesus says here. Pruning. The Lord is pruning me. Now, let's be honest, as we live that out, it's hard to believe. It still feels like punishment. And certainly the world is quick to tell us that that's what it is, quick to say that karma, you know, has finally circled back on us, or that we've got to sing for our supper, or in some way suffer for our supper. The devil is right there to whisper in our ear, trying to convince us that God is angry at us, or he has forgotten us. Our own flesh, our own conscience will try to convince us that the troubles we're enduring are necessary for us to get back into God's good graces. But look at how thoroughly Jesus repudiates that in verse 3. He goes on to say, Already you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. The world and the flesh and the devil are always getting us thinking about someday. Someday with enough effort. Someday with enough suffering. Someday when my conscience gets quiet, someday we will make ourselves all that we should be through our own efforts. We'll find that rest and acceptance. But Jesus doesn't say someday. Jesus says already. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. The word he's talking about is the word of the gospel. The word through which we put our trust in Jesus that the Savior has come, that He has already done all the work, that he will endure all the suffering, and that he has done that, that he takes care of both our sin problem and our striving for righteousness problem, that he saves us and that he sustains us, that he's the vine that gives us life and that the Father is the vine dresser. It's that word of the gospel of Jesus Christ that the Father puts to work as his pruning shears. This is why Paul likens that word to something like pruning shears when he says it is sharper than a two-edged sword. And I I don't want to lose sight of the ironic nature of pruning as we think about the ministry of the word. As we think about preaching, that, that what can appear to be harmful, God actually puts to work for our help. And You know, that, again, it makes church an interesting situation, particularly the ministry of preaching, kind of an interesting thing, right? Because the word faithfully preached does the work of pruning. It cuts. It cuts to the end that losses turn to gain, that that instead of it being reductive, it works to our life and our thriving. So, So I would say beware In fact, run from the pillow-fluffing pastor who bends over backwards to do everything they can to make sure that the word will never cut, who is way more concerned that everyone is feeling comfortable than that they are cared for by the vine dresser through the word, through the power of the gospel. Now, it seems to me by what Jesus says next that he knows we're going to struggle to believe that we're already clean. It seems that he knows that even as he explains this, that in our experience, we'll readily and instinctively run back to the self-salvation techniques that we think will make us clean. So he urges us not to merely acknowledge him as Savior, but he says, 
abide in me as Savior. Abide isn't a word we use a whole lot. It's an old-fashioned word. It's related to another. It's an old-fashioned verb related to an old-fashioned noun, abode, which means home. It just means to make yourself at home. Jesus is saying, make yourself at home with me, in me. And I want to call this an invitation, but I think it's so much more than that. He doesn't actually say, abide in me, and then I will abide in you as some kind of conditional thing. He says, abide in me, and I in you. In other words, abide in me as I'm making my home in you. Why is that distinction so important? It means that Jesus doesn't hang back waiting on us to make the first move. It means Jesus has already moved in. Jesus never invites without first initiating. He won't even saddle us with the terrible burden of having to make the right decision because he has already decided on us. And I want to say thank God. Thank God that your life and mine doesn't rest on our decision-making acumen because I don't even have the capacity to choose a healthy option at a restaurant. I don't have the capacity to select a show to watch on Netflix, and yet I somehow imagine I have the capacity to choose my savior for myself. And I think I readily prove that I have done that so wrongly so many times. What a grace that Jesus says, I've already moved in. I take the initiative before I put the invitation to you. Jesus makes the first move. He seeks and saves the lost. He leaves the 99 to go find the one who's wandered away. He seeks worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. He makes the first move. He raises us from dead to life. He turns what was a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Jesus initiates. Jesus indwells. But also, he does incentivize. He gives us a great incentive here. He goes on to say that just as the branch can't bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And that puts the question to us, I think. The question of where will you and I make our home? Where you make your home kind of makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? Where you settle in as home, I think, affects how you live life. In every way, it affects how you speak, what you wear, what you eat, how you socialize, what you're for, what you're against. It touches every aspect of life. You know, it's, it's one thing to live somewhere. It's quite another to make your home there. If you've ever moved from one region of the country to another, you know this. I mean, try to live in Texas as a New Yorker or in, or in Connecticut as a Californian. It never works right? There's no greater misery than being a Yankee fan in Boston or a Californian complaining forever about the beaches on the East Coast or an American in London griping that there's not any ice in my water. You're always pushing against what should otherwise be a joyful, thriving life because you refused to settle in at home with the weather and the food, and the people, and the teams, and all the things, right? But what a difference it makes when you can genuinely call a place your own, your home. 
where you can thrive and grow and rest and enjoy. That gives something of a flavor of what Jesus is inviting us into in a relationship with him, to live in him as home. So that his gospel would, would constitute and contour everything about us. That's the kind of relationship Jesus is inviting us into with him, to live in him as home so that, so that uh, we don't have to wonder about what it means to live in him because we actually see that play out in this gospel. What does it look like to make your home in Jesus? Making your home in Jesus begins simply with coming to him once he has come to you. The disciples he's talking to did just that. They came to Jesus in response to John's preaching. John the Baptist, when he pointed to Jesus and said, look, there's the one who's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They didn't, and, and, and once they responded to that preaching, having come to him, what did they do next? They communed with him. They didn't hear the gospel and go off on their own. They came together. They entered into and integrated as a community. You see, there's no such thing as a personal relationship with Jesus that isn't at the same time a communal relationship with Jesus. This means that making your home with Jesus necessitates membership in his church. And, and look, I know that sounds stuffy, like you've got to join the golf club or something. But membership is actually an organic term. It has to do with being an integrated part of a larger body so that the individual member functions and gets its life from the body and contributes to the life of the body. And you just can't be a living member of the body of Christ and be disconnected. You have to be connected to the body, integrated into it. So you come to Jesus in response to gospel preaching. You commune with Jesus, relying on the preaching of the word, the communion meal, all the things, all the life-giving means of grace that he gives us through the church. And then you know what you do? You continue in Jesus. Back in chapter 8, Jesus talks about continuing in him. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That is to say, the same word that calls you to newness of life is the one that has created newness of life and that keeps you in your, li your life in Jesus. That's to say you never move on from the gospel. You never leave it behind. It is both the center of the Christian life and the circumference of the Christian life. You live in it. His word lives in you, dwelling in you richly, as Paul puts it in Colossians 3. So we make our home by coming to Jesus by communing with Jesus and his people, by continuing in Jesus, by never getting over the gospel, and finally, by keeping Jesus' commands. That's really the emphasis of the rest of the chapter. We don't have time to get to it this morning in any kind of depth, but all of this works toward the end that his disciples would keep his commands, and especially the command to love one another. If you're looking for evidence that of newness of life and Jesus among his people, I think exhibit A is the capacity to love one another. Now, it's easy to think that we may be doing that quite well apart from Jesus, that we've got people in our lives that we love and that love us in return, and that's certainly true. But, but notice how Jesus puts the command, not just to love one another, but he says, love one another as I have loved you. 
How has Jesus loved us? In our loveliness? In such a way that he gets, he's guaranteed of getting as much out of the relationship as he's put in? Not at all. He didn't love us in our loveliness. He's loved us in our sin. He didn't fulfill himself, but emptied himself. He didn't love those endeared to him, but he loved his enemies, giving fully of himself unto death. And that begins to show up in the church. One person said that the church is just a community of former enemies reconciled because of Jesus. It's first on the list of how the world will know that we are Jesus' followers by our ability to love one another. Keeping that command, loving one another as Jesus has loved us is, is the first fruits of new life in Christ. It's evidence of new life and a new heart motive that grows us in and out because of the love of Jesus for us. The gospel creates in us a deep gratitude for being so deeply and undeservedly loved that it becomes impossible to shut anyone out becomes impossible to just curate for ourselves a little mutual admiration society, but we find that we can even love those who would otherwise be our enemies because of how Jesus has loved us. So when your home is in Jesus, when the gospel is nourishing the life, gratitude displaces grudges. Giving becomes sweeter than getting. Sympathy towards others takes the place of striking out towards others. Generosity of spirit dislodges judgmentalism. We become less and less concerned for self and more and more taken with the sweetness of thinking about Jesus. All of that is, is what Jesus describes in verse 5 as bearing much fruit. But he takes it even further. He goes on to say that apart from him, we can do nothing. And, and I've got to be honest here, when I read that, I'm kind of asking myself, really nothing? Are, are you sure there's not a little something I can do? Well, of course, Jesus knows that we can do all sorts of things, but the is issue here isn't what sorts of things we might do in this life, but I think he's really addressing here the substance of what we do with our life and in this life. That's really what Jesus is talking about, and he's unequivocal. It is only when your home is in him that you are able to enter into and enjoy a life of fullness, of substance, a life that reaches beyond even this life, one in which we are able to do things which brings a fruitfulness that works to the glory of God and the eternal good for others, a life of substance. And I want to be clear, all, all human beings are precious in God's sight. We all bear his image. We're all endowed with the highest worth so Jesus isn't saying that life apart from him is meaningless, not at all, or, or valueless, or, or utterly lacking in any kind of substance. He, but he is saying that apart from him, in the end, it will have been fruitless. And he teaches this not to condemn us, but in fact, that we would come to him, that we would live in him, that we would know fruitfulness. In fact, in verse 6, you see how high the stakes actually are. Jesus issues what is among Scripture's most dire warnings in which, where he says that the person who does not abide in him 
is thrown away like a branch that withers to be gathered up and burned. Now, again, this is among the most intense warnings in Scripture, and it's there precisely that we would know the truth and never, ever have to endure that terrible fate. And I I know uh, that none of us likes words of judgment, uh, but, but I hope that we can see the grace of it and Jesus giving us a true diagnostic and a warning that we would not have to endure what he describes here. We should also keep in mind that Jesus is speaking to his own disciples. No one can hear this as one exempt from the warning. We should all lean in and listen up and be humbled and be shaken to the end that we would move toward Christ. And there's so much to contemplate about what all this means. I'm happy to receive emails or have phone calls or when it's possible to get together and unpack the fullness of verse 6 here. I can't adequately unpack it here except to say unequivocally, the Scripture teaches the reality of judgment, the reality of a judgment that will either fall on us to our eternal ruin or with faith in Christ that will fall on Him for us for our eternal redemption. And yet as alarming as the warning is, it pales, I think, in comparison with the extravagance of the grace of Jesus as he continues with among the most staggering promises in the gospel. That if we make our home with him, that if his words make a home in us, we can ask him for whatever we want. And Jesus says, and it will be done. And notice what Jesus describes here in verse 7. Just kind of the shape of it. There's talking, but there's listening. There's asking. There's answering. He's inviting his people into a conversation. One in which his people listen to his word, not merely with attentiveness, but with real expectation. What a privilege, what a gift to know that Jesus not only listens to his people, but that he goes out of his way here to invite us to talk to him. This is what we call prayer. And not only to talk to him, but, for, but to ask things of him, to ask whatever we want. Jesus is, virtually urges that here. And he assures us that, we, that it will be ours. And you hear that, and of course the mind races. You know, and it's hard to believe. You, you, you want to say, really, whatever I wish? Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes-Benz? I've yet to meet a Christian who has prayed through some of these whatevers and not gotten what they asked for. So how is it that Jesus can make such an extravagant promise? Well, the first thing I want to say is, I don't want to back off on the extravagance of it. It is extravagant. But what can't be ignored is that this extravagant promise is embedded in the idea of abiding in Jesus, of making your home in Him. And that has to shape the conversation, does it not? Again, where you live touches everything. It touches your heart, your values, your relationships, your desires. And making your home in Jesus will necessarily shape how you relate to him as one whose heart has been revived and recalibrated by the gospel. So just as in a good marriage where a husband and wife have made a home together, Husbands are very thoughtful about what they ask of their wives. Wives are very thoughtful about what they ask of their husbands. In the healthiest homes, parents are deeply thoughtful about what they ask of their children. 
So as it is with loving parents and loving spouses who make their homes together, their home together, Jesus wants us to know that our desires are deeply, deeply important to him. And because that's true, our desires are changed, as is our posture before Jesus, so that it becomes virtually impossible on the one hand to disrespect our relationship with him in some trite, name-it-claim-it way like he's nothing more than a genie in our bottle. But it also becomes virtually impossible to devalue the relationship with him so much so that we're so insecure that we never ask him for what we really want and really need. It seems to me that the gospel keeps us both from thoughtlessness and unbelief so that we actually are in conversation with Jesus in such a way that we ask for things greater than feathering our own nest and we're motivated to ask boldly because we know we're fully at home with our great king who has already moved in, who has already been eternally generous with us and assured us he's glad to give us everything we desire. The passage ends with assurance that we will receive whatever we desire, even as the Father receives what he alone deserves. Glory. Jesus says, by all this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. In the end, it turns out that the conditions necessary for fruitfulness are the same as the consequences of fruitfulness. That is that we would be connected to Jesus, abiding in Him, so that growing outward comes by way of growing into Jesus, so that going forward with the gospel comes by way of always going back to the gospel, so that coming to Jesus as his disciples comes because we continue as disciples for Jesus. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, um, what a great picture and what a great promise. And in fact, what a great assurance. Lord, we thank you that you are the vine from whom we derive our life, and that, Father, you are the vine dresser who cares for our life. There is nothing left unattended. And, Lord, how we need to be assured of that today when it's, it seems that life has been turned upside down, when many of us are turned inside out, thinking about how in the world are we going to sustain our life. Lord, the answer is here in your word, that we would abide in you, that we would make our home with you, that we would be in conversation with you, that our hearts would be bolstered by the good news that, in fact, our home is already secure, that our life is safe in you, that where we are headed is certain. And, Lord, that whatever troubles we endure in this life is because our vine dresser is caring for us. And, Lord, we can't fully envision the fruitfulness of that now. But Lord, even if we can't trace your hand, we trust your heart. So Lord, use this word in our own lives. Lord, use it um, to draw people to yourself. Help us to quit scrambling around to find the root and to pay attention to you, Jesus, when you tell us that you are the vine, the true vine. Look no further. Let us find our life in you and rest there. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.